Hello and welcome to the latest Business Leader Insight. We have a really, really special guest for you today. It's Professor Steve Peters, who has worked with elite athletes, politicians and business leaders for many, many years on their psychological well-being. He's also the author of two best-selling books called The Chimp Paradox and A Path Through the Jungle. We'll be talking to Steve about those books and any kind of coping mechanisms and insight that he can give business leaders to be more successful and happy in their lives and careers. And we'll go over to Steve now. Welcome, Steve. Nice to have you with us today. We'll um, start by talking, you know, you recently published your new book, uh, A Path Through the Jungle, which we've read here at Business Leader and, and fully recommend. In the first phase of the book, you mentioned all of us are composed of, of three systems, the human, the chimp or the computer. And obviously you, you do reference that in the chimp paradox as well. But for those of us who aren't familiar with this and the kind of foundations of what you're talking about, can you tell us what they are and, and how they manifest themselves in, in humans? So thanks for inviting me. The new book is really showing how to use what the concepts were in the chimp paradox. So this is actually a program for people to follow unit by unit. And the basis of what I do is to explain as a doctor, I'm trying to say if we understand the structure and the functioning of our mind and the rules by which it works, we can learn to manage our minds so our behaviours, our emotions, our thinking can start coming under our control rather than be managed by our minds, which often give us things we don't actually want. So in order to access the mind, I tried to make it simple. If we really look at the structure of the mind and the functional MRI scanners, we can see that there are two systems trying to run the mind. They look at the world very differently. One of these systems, we share exactly the same system almost with the chimpanzee. So about 30 years ago, when I created this model to work with, I said that primitive system is there to support and help you, keep you away from danger and guide you. But the methods by which it works are jungle based. For example, it doesn't work with values. It will work with impulsive reactions. It doesn't think things through. It doesn't consider consequences. So if we look at a chimpanzee functioning, it's got an intelligence, but it's a reactive intelligence. So I call that the inner chimp system. And we have that in our heads operating from before birth. The second system, the human system, we have additional to this. The chimpanzee has a primitive version but this is the essence of who we are. This is where we decide on our values, how we want to be, what we want to do with our life, how we want to function. And that system tries to work with this inbuilt chimp system, which we're given at birth. So we don't have a choice on that particular system. And it's a variant on a theme. So the human system is essentially yourself dropped into the brain. And now you're sharing your mind with a primitive machine trying to run your life and keep you out of danger. However, in the center of the brain, there are many structures, but what they all effectively do is they guide and advise both the human and chimp before they make decisions. So if you think in terms of two decision makers in the brain, you, the human, the chimp system, the primitive guiding, alerting us to danger system, and finally the computer, which both you and the chimp can program and remind ourselves how we want to act, how we want to think, our experiences, memories, so that system is a backup system, much as any computer is, to tell us, don't do this because this is what happened last time, or I advise you to do that. So we can program that, but so can the chimp. No, thanks, Steve. And our audience are business owners, that they're under high-pressure high, you know, high pressure jobs, uh, often very, very successful. Why, why should they read this book, Steve? Okay, if I step back, I'm not a businessman as such. Obviously, I, I run my own company. But if I look and I say, what is it I'm trying to achieve as a doctor? 
it's self-evident, I think, common sense, that if you take somebody who's not in a great place and can't manage their emotions or thinking, or even their behaviours, then it's less likely they'll succeed in whatever they turn their hand to, whether that's being a doctor, whether it's being a nurse, or it's being a teacher, or a business person, or just everyday involvement with other people, personal relationships. However, if you've got an individual and you put them into a really good place so that they feel at peace with themselves, they feel quite happy in what they're doing, they've got confidence, and they're managing the emotions that will be generated in their mind, it's much more likely that that person is going to succeed whatever they turn their hand to, both personally and professionally. So I'm not really going to a corporate person and saying, look, I can give you high-performing teams, I can give you... You know, I can do that kind of thing to show the psychology or the psychiatry behind it. But what I am saying is let's start by getting you or your team individually in a great place. Then we'll look at creating high performing teams. So the basis of a path through the jungle is to get an individual in a really good place and then say, what do you want to do? Now you're in a good place. Your chance of success or probability will rise. You know, in, in terms of like the, the kind of human brain. Do you feel that we can essentially rewire or retrain our minds, you know, from, you know, from a starting point to say, let's, you know, in quite, quite a, a sort of negative mindset, we want to get into to a sort of positive mindset. How, how long does that process usually take? I do appreciate it's different for, for different people. But in principle, we, we, we can retrain our minds, can we? Yeah, well, it's a machine. So if we start understanding what the machine is doing and why it's doing it and how we can actually influence the machine, then we start to understand how to work with ourselves. So as I explained earlier, the chimp system is given to us and it's a spectrum. It's not like there's one system. It's a bit like saying, what's the color of my eyes or my hair? This is given to us. Can we moderate them? Well, a little bit artificially. From the mind's point of view, it's the same. We're given a chimp system, which some people's chimps are horizontal and nothing phases them. So they, they have a natural advantage to being relaxed. That can actually be a negative Whereas the people who would describe themselves as I'm a warrior, I'm highly strong, they're confusing themselves with the mind. And what they're really saying in my world of neuroscience is I've been given a system that appears to be very highly strong, very impulsive and interactive. So how do I manage that? And the more what kind of would be called neurotic or the more highly strong or more aware that system is, actually, the better it could be once you harness this. The more that you have a system which is a little bit unstable, the better to your advantage if you manage to understand it and harness it. So can we do that? Yes. And as I alluded to earlier, you go to the computer system in order to do this because that is the rules of the brain. The chimp system cannot move or make an impulsive decision or anything or even experience an emotion without consulting the entire brain. So we see when information is received in the brain, it spins around the brain in less than a fifth of a second and comes back to the chimp and human system to give very strong advice. And it appears that generally you can't go against that advice. So if we've programmed your computer with advice, the chimp will listen to that and act appropriate to the advice. So the answer is you can't change the nature of our mind, but you can change some of the beliefs and systems we hold within it, which can then influence how that nature is expressed. No, thanks, Steve. That's really interesting. And, you know, we do form a lot of our behaviours and, and, and kind of thought patterns from, from what happened when we were very, very young. So even if there's some very, very ingrained things that, that did happen when we were young, we, we can kind of change those kind of the, the way we approach. 
Can I expand on that a bit? Because again, the devil is in the detail. And one of the things I always say when I work with anybody, always companies is every company's individual, every individual is unique. And therefore, you have to say that person has got to discover and explore, which is what I do with them. What's going to work for them? What's best? And some experiences we get in childhood can be quite traumatic, but we can actually process them and we can actually effectively remove them or then any negative influence and turn it into positive. However, if we've had some traumatic experience as a child or we perceive it as traumatic, sometimes you can't do that. I call these emotional scars. And the science behind it appears to be this is so ingrained that we need to actually accept them and work with them. That doesn't mean they can have a massive influence on our life if we learn to contain them. But trying to remove them or process them is probably futile. Okay, no, no, that's really interesting. Thanks, Steve. And in in the book, you cover resilience quite a lot. And that's important to our readers, because a lot of them will kind of feel that they are resilient. I just want to get you to kind of delve into that a little bit more and what you think resilience means in life, and you know, in in a a high stress situation. And how does somebody know they are resilient or or they're not? Yeah, I mean, it's defined differently by different people. So the way I define resilience is it's based on robustness. So what I do with people is say to be robust, it's like preparing and being fit for purpose. So you do robustness behind locked doors before you enter the world and you sit down and work out what's going on in your head, how you're going to manage your unique mind, what you want from it. You prepare. You also look at many of the things which I think we'll probably go on to. And these are things like trigger points because they're unique to the person. So I try and explore all of these. So we do a, a bit, basically a mind map. And then we have a plan of action that we're going to put in place should we meet something that's a trigger point or an adversity or something that might knock us back or make us lose confidence, whatever it is. So it's a plan, robustness. Everyone can become robust. However, the second you step outside your house and interact with the world, now you get challenges and we need to see, is that plan actually going to work? And it will work if it's a good, robust plan. And we may have to go back to the drawing board and say, let's just really refine that plan because it didn't quite work. On the other hand, it may not work because we don't have the emotional skill to apply or implement the plan. That's different. So resilience to me is that it's an acquired skill base where whatever life throws at you, whatever happens within your head or outside, you have the ability to implement your plans and stay in a good place. So that's how I define resilience. It's an acquired skill, and it's something you have to practice like any skill. You've got to acquire it, practice, and maintain it. Otherwise, our minds will go back to default position. That's really interesting, because I guess you're talking about resilience, something like, you know, you say it's an acquired skill, but maybe people who haven't looked into neuroscience will just think resilience is just bad things happening to me, and I kind of move on and deal with it and don't talk about them. But you're saying it's actually important to to look at these triggers and, and try and get a kind of process for for dealing with with difficult uh, um, uh, circumstances. Yeah, because the mind has got rules by which we can work and it will work within those rules. If we break the rules of the mind inadvertently or because we're just not aware how does the mind function, then the mind kicks back. And this is where when the mind kicks back, we usually experience negative emotions or thinking because the mind's trying to tell us it's a message that you're really not using me properly, a bit like putting petrol in a diesel car it starts jumping and the car's trying to tell you you've got the wrong fuel and the mind is very similar if you put the wrong fuel into your mind and apply yourself with behaviors or thinking in a way that's not appropriate to where the mind works it will kick back no thanks Steve that's really interesting and also you touched on the sort of chimp earlier and I guess this is tied into resilience and how it can 
hijack somebody's thoughts. But can the chimp ever be a, a positive thing? I know this is something that is explored through a part of the jungle in regards to sort of scanning for danger and intuition. I mean, they're the blatantly obvious ones that this machine within our head is trying to think for us and, and predict where's the danger and give us warning signs by using emotions as messages. The reality is, which I say in the book, the chimp is actually always on your side, always. So the chimp is not a negative influence, a massively positive influence. What happens is when it gives us a negative emotion, we don't know what to do with that. So what we tend to do is engage the negative emotion or we start wrongly interpreting it as, oh, there must be something wrong or there is a weakness instead of saying, actually, this is the chimp brain giving us an emotional message and it's a prompt for us to act on this. So the chimp is not doing something which is actually negative at all. It's a positive. It's giving us an emotion which may feel negative, but it's actually, if you can see it in a positive light, it's a call to action. And that's the human's job. It's our job not to engage the emotion, but rather say, why is the chimp giving me this emotion? So I think I always try to get across to people, the chimp is not a negative influence. It's a positive one, provided you know how to harness its power and understand what it's trying to tell you. As I've touched on earlier, you know, people who are going to watch this are going to be entrepreneurs. And one thing that a lot of them tell us and we hear time and time again is that they, they suffer from imposter uh, syndrome. I mean, why does the brain... Do this? Do you have any insight into how leaders can work with this better and, and not feel those feelings? Yeah. Uh, you covered two things there, which I just want to make sure that uh, people listening understand. I can't tell people what to do. So I'm not telling anybody this is how you can become more successful. What I'm saying is you need to explore what you believe will bring success and say, is this the right way for me to do it? So you're optimizing your unique mind. So people have very different approaches. I'm not here to tell people what to do. So, however, if we look at imposter syndrome, moving to that, it is very, very common among people. And if you look at this again, turning it on its head, it's an extremely positive thing to have. If you step back and say it's coming from the chimp brain and what the chimp is trying to tell us is, I believe there is danger around because you're not actually up to the job. You're not actually up to standard and people around are going to see this. And that could lead to some serious problems. If you really go back to the jungle principles, and not everything can relate to jungle principles, but I think this one can. If we look at chimpanzees in the wild and see what this part of the brain is doing for them, do they have imposter syndrome? The answer is they do. And the way they have imposter syndrome is they'll suddenly sense maybe they don't think, or particularly the alpha chimp, or the rest of the troop don't think I'm up to the job. Now, if a chimp is thought to be a weak link, the troop will exclude the chimp because it's using up food and vital energy that they can't afford. So every chimpanzee must demonstrate its right to be in the troop. So chimpanzees constantly try and prove that they are strong and worthy of being in the troop and impress the rest of the troop. And if you translate that across, our primitive brain is doing something similar. It's saying, I might not be up to this job, and therefore I'm, I'm becoming an imposter. And somehow the rest of the troop are going to find me out. And if they find me out, they could exclude me, now, for a chimpanzee in, in the wild, that's almost tantamount to death because a solo chimpanzee can't survive in the jungle. You know, leopards explore for chimps. And as a troop, you, you can shout out, something's coming. On your own, you've got to sleep sometime. And I think the same is happening in our brains where when you tease out what is imposter syndrome, it's the idea that I'm going to be found out because I'm not as strong as I think I am or I'm purporting to be. So I need to step up and I don't think I can get there. So again, it's a warning from the chimp to say, stop, just check this out. 
And now we bring in the human beliefs. So for example, rationally speaking, the human works with logic and rationality, the chimp doesn't. It works just purely with an emotional basis. It has emotional logic, but it's based on emotion, so it can be faulty. So the human comes in and says, here's the rationality. If I ask even an elite athlete, is it that every time you go out to perform, you'll achieve your full potential? And they're going to say, well, no, that's unrealistic. You know, there are different reasons you may not achieve full potential, and some of them are out of your control. If you ask a business person, it's exactly the same. There'll be many factors outside of your control, and even those who are inside your control, you may not always optimize. We can't do that. We're not robotic. We're actually human beings with a very complex mind. So if you start putting in those facts into the computer that you can't always be in the best position, you can't always be right, you can't always be successful, of course we still want to drive forward towards getting success. I'm not saying we shouldn't, but I'm saying realism is you can't always do it. Even with that one thought, that can settle down imposter syndrome because the reality is everybody's an imposter if we think that it should be perfect. Everybody, because none of us can actually be perfect. We will always have weaknesses. Again, taking a different angle, because it's a big one, so I want to just expand on this. It may be that doesn't resonate with people at all, which I understand, which is why I hate to work individually. It may be instead a different angle is imposter syndrome is a wake-up call from the chimp to say, I think you need to step up your skill base. I think you need to step up your knowledge. I think whatever field you're in, this is a call to say, no, step back and take some time to have a look at what you're doing and reassess. Again, it's a very positive thing to get because it's a wake-up call for action. It's the action you want to take rather than engaging, I've got this imposter syndrome, how do I block it out of my mind? And then you get these anxiety feelings coming all the time, every time you try and move. You covered something there, which I was just going to kind of talk about there, how it actually could be a positive thing, because it can make you work harder, can't it? Because you, you, like you said, you can develop your skill base. This is the kind of thing, if I were working with you, is, um, you know, when you say work harder, I'd stop you and say, hang on, do you really mean work harder? Because that is what a chimp would say, work harder, work harder, which actually, what did you really mean? Your human's actually probably going to say, work more effectively. It sounds semantics, but the reason I pull you up is that our brains do this too, is they give us the wrong words. The chimp's trying to help, but it gives you the wrong words. And your job is to say, hang on, can I just pause and say, is that the right thing to do? So I probably will work harder, but I probably need to work more effectively. The subtlety is sometimes people don't recognize that, and therefore they are working harder and harder. And of course, working harder doesn't always mean it's good. No, that, that is really interesting. And do you feel it's something that everybody has, but only certain people will kind of admit to it? Or is it does it only affect some, some people? I think, again, it's a primitive defence that we see within the chimpanzee. So as I said earlier, not everything translates from the, what we see in a chimpanzee to humans. The brain is slightly different. However, a lot of it is there. We recognise it, which is why we do relate to these animals very well. Is it going to be in everyone? The answer is it's likely that that particular behavior in the mind is going to present. But if you have in your computer these realistic thoughts and beliefs, then it may never appear. So you may feel, well, I've never suffered imposter syndrome. I just think all I can do is my best. And I don't purport to be anything better. So some people won't suffer it at all. Whereas others, it can actually destroy them because they say it just comes in every day and I, I can't deal with this. So again, it goes back to this idea that when I'm working with someone, we sort of sit the same side of the table to explore their mind and say, let's tease out what are the beliefs underpinning this? What are the behaviors you're doing? What's working? What isn't working? What do you want to work? 
but ultimately, I guess, you know, to, to end that thread, it, it's something that it shouldn't be something you kind of block out. It, it can be a positive thing, Steve. I rarely say to people block this. I do. There are certain conditions where the mind will accept the block and they won't have detriment. Generally speaking, blocking thoughts in the mind is not a good thing to do. The 90% rule is that it's going to come back. When we block, it goes into the unconscious part of the mind. It's not actually silenced at all. And therefore, it's constantly on the move, but we're not aware of it. And generally, this presents why we get dramatic dreams at times, because it's trying to sort it out while we're asleep. But it will do it during the day as well. So I don't recommend people block. It's best to decide on blocking when it's the right thing to do and it works. But I think it's very big caution about ignoring feelings and thoughts. In the book, you, you talk about ma- managing significant life events. Now, I felt this was important to kind of give us uh, our viewers some insight into because that might mean, you know, I know in the book you talk about when elite athletes retire and, and it's kind of finding sort of what next. And that might be the same for a business leader or, or the company kind of not doing so well. And I, I do take your point that it, it's, you know, you can't kind of give advice that, that is kind of universal. But could you just talk through what you mean by managing significant life events better and, and, and sort of a, a length of the process for something that, that, that's quite big in life? Again, it's going to be a spectrum. I sound very much like a psychiatrist. There's no black and white, shades of grey. I'll take it just as simple examples to try and make it clear. If you have an event that you believe is insignificant or trivial, but it's not what you want, then your mind processes this. But when the mind tries to process it, it goes down two different tracts. So again, it brings me back to these teams in the brain. The human tract works with facts and information, so it processes very quickly. It can make rational decisions on based on what the facts are in front of it, and it's got on with it. The problem we have is when the chimp system tries to work with facts, which it can't, it will work then with emotions generated by those facts. So in order to process an event, the chimp must express emotion, deal with it, and it will go through stages which are well recognized of denial, yearning, bargaining, very similar to a grief reaction. Finally, sort of accepting, well, this is it, and then getting this almost despondency, and then suddenly reorganize. If you have a significant life event, we know that, generally speaking, the human part of the brain will deal with it quite quickly, and the chimp part will take approximately three months to go through these stages. But that varies terrifically with people. You know, if we lose somebody close to us, for example, that's probably the most obvious then that grief reaction, by and large, after three months, we're starting to come out of the numbness and all the bargaining and yearning, if only, if only. And then we come into the stage where we reorganize. But this depends on how significant it is for you. And it could go on as long as two years. It could go on longer. So going through a process where we're trying to engage what's happened and put events and scenarios, incidences into perspective, assimilating them into our life and moving on, is unique to the person. As a rule of thumb, nobody goes through it quicker than around three months when it's significant. So we can't rush grief. As you rightly said, it could be losing your job. It could be an illness hits you and you change your self-perception. It could be losing a partner, going through a marriage breakup where you actually want to be out of this and you go through a divorce. You still, we know, we recognize that you can go through a grief process, even though you feel this is the right thing. You grieve on the sense that you lose that relationship and what you thought you'd invested in, that you would have been successful. And your chimp brain is likely to interpret as being, I failed. So we, we know that grief processes and processing information is complicated. And I've tried to explain this in the book, A Path of the Jungle, where I've said, look at two tracks, and then I've tried to show how you can help the tracks 
to process information. I just want to dig into that a little bit more. And we have a scenario where we've spoken to, to many business leaders who have sold their company and they've got a certain amount of you know uh, a monetary kind of uh, you know reward for that. And it's a time when they should be happy because they've done the hard work, they've kind of moved on. But often they'll fall into a state of yeah, almost like grieving. Why is that? Do you think? Again, if we're looking at happiness or peace of mind, I mean, I see these very differently. But let's say you've gone down the route of happiness. Happiness is like a bucket. uh, And if there's a hole in it, it's going to drain out. And there are many different ways we can get holes in the bucket. For example, a lack of purpose, a lack of challenge. You know, the chimp is not a bad thing. The chimp loves challenges. It loves to get up for the fight. So we can harness that and work with it and manage it. But if you have no purpose in life or you feel the purpose you've got is just not fulfilling, then that's a hole in the bucket. So I I wouldn't be surprised people saying, I don't know, that's just not right. I've got what I want and I've got a nice house. I've got, you know, a great partner. I've got a car that I love. I've got whatever it is. Uh, And then they say, but I'm still not happy. So sense of purpose is unique to the person. They have to discover that. The other thing that can happen is we go through stages within life. And again, well-researched. So when we're setting off in life, we tend to be building our resources up. We're building out our skill base and we're going into a career generally or building a home, building a relationship. When we get older and we've been successful, and it could be any age, there can be this moment where you think, well, what's it all about now? Because I was on this treadmill of success in my eyes. I've been successful and now it doesn't feel good. Something's not right. And I think, again, it's accepting you're going through a different stage in life and you have to start looking, instead of saying, I need this achievement, maybe you need to look at something else. Maybe the achievement's got to be within yourself. So personal development is a hard achievement. It's a hard task to do. But you have to look and say, what would that person say? Actually, that's great because now I can move my energy somewhere else. Sorry the answer's vague, but it's got to be unique to the person and explore just because you've made money doesn't mean you're going to be happy. I'm sure you're aware the research on the lottery winners, for example, who can win multi-millions and two years later, they're no happier than they were at the beginning. And it's not too surprising because there's a few holes in the bucket still. And I guess, you know, you, you, you would have seen that from, from working with elite athletes as well when, when maybe they retire from a sport. Do you, do you think it's important to, like, you know, it, like you say, it's not about money, but finding another passion? in life whether that's another sport because I, I you know i see a lot of ex sports people you know boxers that they'll take up golf and invest a lot of time in that do you, do you feel that's important yeah if that's what they want to do and they put this drive into a different sport so a different challenge and it's not as intense where they felt that their self-image and and in fact their career was hanging on on success whereas a second career if they can afford it and it doesn't then clearly you would expect them to be feeling much less pressure But on the point of athletes retiring, it's one of my favorite stories. There's something we need to be aware of the chimp brain that whatever we do, it will eventually dismiss it. That's how it works. It's very rare for someone to go throughout life having achieved something and think, I feel totally satisfied now. That's very rare. Mostly what the chimp does is once it's done it, it then downs it and says, well, yeah, that's not that big a deal. So my favorite story was an athlete I worked with, which I won't name as a doctor. I can only give you when I have permission from the athlete. So just teasing. But the athlete won an Olympic gold medal and came to see me and said, I feel really down now. And I said, well, you've worked for this throughout your career. And they said, yeah, but there's loads of people get gold medals. And I said, okay. And I said, it was also a world record. And they said, yeah, but it's not a good world record. And that just depicts what the chimp does to us. It's a ridiculous statement. You know, you get them to see it and they laugh. And a world record is a world record. But 
I got what they were meaning, but our chimps have a tendency, whatever we do in life, success in business, dismiss it. Success in relationships, forget and dismiss. And we have to recognize it's doing that and, and prevent that. Yeah, that that is that is it's it's almost absurd to to say something like that, isn't it? After after having broke a, a world record and and achieved gold, but in terms of the, the people you've worked with, what are some of the common traits that make them stand out in having achieved success? This is a difficult one again. I mean, I'm a psychiatrist, so what I try and do is when I work with someone, I try to help them to understand themselves. And in doing that sort of analysis, I've got to listen carefully to what they say. And people are driven by very, very different things. You know, so sometimes the chimp is behind your success. Absolutely. And therefore, it's the best friend you've got in that sense. You just need to manage it well. Sometimes it's the human that's driving it. If it's the human, then it can be because of altruistic reasons. You know, you really want to help people and you want to make it a better world for everybody. If it's the chimp, it can still be altruistic, but it can often be a sense of proving. But then it gets, again, the devil in the detail. Is it proving to yourself or is it proving to your parents or your coach or other people, your team? I don't know until I ask the question. And only when I ask that someone might sound very happy to just try and prove to other people how good I am. That, that's satisfying. It's not for me to say, well, that's not really good. Or they may say, well, I'm not happy. Why am I doing it? Because I don't really want to be going through my life trying to prove to other people that I'm worthy and good. So again, I know it's not helpful, Ollie, because you want some concrete answers. But I think I can't do that. Maybe other people can. What I do is I go from the individual or the company or team or wherever I'm working and tease out where they're going so we can explore and then guide them. But I'll go back to what I said. It's at the right at the beginning of this. It's all about your mind. It's all about understanding yourself. And when you've done that and got yourself in a good place, understanding what gets the best out of others and how to help them with their mind. No, no, thanks. No, no, I, I totally understand. I think even, you know, eliciting from your answer, it's, it's about reflection and thoughtfulness are two things that, that come out through that that probably um, set successful people apart, um, maybe from, from those who aren't so successful. But no, thanks for that, Steve. When we told our, our viewers and readers that we were going to talk to you, nearly everybody said to us, and it, you know, that they put it in a very kind of blunt way, like, how can I deal with stress? Uh, and I know you talk a lot about stress uh, in the book. And again, it's, it's another big issue and, and will will be different for individuals. But can you just give a bit of an insight in, into how you kind of cover stress in your book? The first point is stress is not a bad thing. So I'm going to turn it on its head and say, if I look scientifically, I explain this in detail in the book, so I'll, I'll outline it here. The body actually goes through three different stages. The first stage, which is an immediate reactive stress, is actually healthy for you. That's not a bad thing. It tunes the system up, gets you alerted. What's very interesting for me as a doctor is that the, the part of the body, the adrenal cortex, which releases a lot of cortisol, which apart from that, there's are uh, neurotransmitters and chemicals, but that's behind a stress feeling. The same part of the body, the adrenal cortex, releases another chemical. Uh, and this chemical, this hormone, actually is a resilience hormone and it overpowers the cortisol. And if we can recognize that moment and it does appear, then we are able then to act and say, OK, we take a deep breath and start moving. However, we don't recognize that resilience moment, then the cortisol overtakes this new hormone and you're back to being into a, a, an unhealthy stress state. So the first stress state is, is healthy and it's a call to action again. The, the resilience stage comes in and the body helps you. 
We need to know how to recognize and use it. And finally, if you don't do that, you fall into now an unhealthy stress state where cortisol is on the move along with other transmitters and it will damage your system. So we know that that is not healthy. So therefore the beginning statement stress is good for you is the initial stage. It's not good if it goes to the chronic stage. So first point is prevent stress. That's the obvious. In the 70s, we knew as doctors, we're saying, well, rather than treat illness, prevent it. So preventative medicine came into its own. And, and I'm still with that saying, you know, 50 years on, can we prevent stress from occurring? And if we can prevent it, and this is why I'd go back and say, let me find your trigger points. We all have trigger points which will start us going into the cortisol rise. So not everybody gets the same trigger points. So it's very important to discover your trigger points and then say, right, what is my plan? We're now into robustness. When this happens, what do I intend to do? What do I want to do? Not what will my mind do, but what do I want? Then I'm going to stop interference from either chimp or computer. So that's the starting point. Trigger points, what do you expect to happen? Prepare. Don't go ill-prepared. If you then say, right, we try them out with stress, you then have to say, if the robustness doesn't work, refine the plan. But occasionally, people have a plan which is reasonable, but unrealistic. And that's important to recognize. I often get people I work with saying, but it's reasonable. And I'm never going to disagree with reasonable. I'm just saying the world doesn't work with reasonable. It works with reality and realistic. So again, this is how the human brain approaches life. So on the stress stage, first prevent, prepare and with a plan. If it happens, recognize what your trigger points are. If you can't avoid them, have a plan. If you can avoid them, avoid them. If you can remove them, that's even better. And then recognize the resilience stage, which is not easy. But what if you've gone into a stress state? You've got to ask yourself, why have you sunk into this? What is it you're not doing? Or what beliefs have you got that are not actually helpful? And you're going to have to turn them over. So I'll take a, a, a moment, a, a strange example. Let's say I get a person who comes in and say, I want to be the best looking person in the world. Oh, that's ridiculous. You know, it's a ridiculous statement because everyone would argue who's the best looking. But if that's a bizarre request that I might be given, I have to say, right, if you want that and you're not got it, which you're not going to, you're going to be stressed for the rest of your life. So if you're really going to give me something so unrealistic and you can't change your belief, I can't help you. And I can't. I say you must accept the consequence of your belief. So if you're going to work with something which is absurd, in my opinion, and you can't achieve it, expect stress, and you're going to have to suffer the consequence, deal with the stress. So if you go to the business world, I often get business leaders who have unrealistic expectations of either themselves or their staff. And if I can't say, look, can we review this and your beliefs around how the world works and the way your mind works and they, they won't have it, then I can't stop that stress. There's a consequence to refusing to work with reality. I'm not saying, again, be complacent. I'm very much against that. As I say, I work to optimize performance in people and optimize quality of life. But I am saying there are times we have to accept there may have to be some kind of change of belief or a compromise situation. Otherwise, stress is inevitable. That is really interesting, Steve, because I think a lot of people perceive stress as something that it's sort of happening to me. It's out of my control. But what you're saying is it's, it's to do with accepting reality and belief systems, isn't it? Rather than, you know, I should be stressed because this has happened, this has happened. But what people need to do is maybe take a step back and, and, and look at their goals, their aspirations and, and, and their beliefs. Exactly. And as I say, stress is a good thing as long as we keep it in the first stage and move from it 
with resilience back to stability. The body uses this all the time. You know, at the moment, I've got a sat here with a cup of coffee. I'm desperate. You're going to drink in a minute. And I'm just thinking, I'm getting dry. So my body is now physically stressed. And it's a call for me to drink and I'll be fine. The mind is doing the same when it's starting to give you uncomfortable feelings. This is the chimp side of the brain saying, you need to act here. There is a problem. And I'm bringing this to your attention. So don't ignore it. We'll let you get to your coffee in a, in a, in a moment, uh, Steve. But I've got one more. Uh, you mentioned the book about chronic stress, and sometimes people can actually feel that that's a normal state, which I'm guessing is quite dangerous. So what you know, how, if, if people think that's a normal state, how can they actually know that they're stressed? And, and when, when does it become dangerous? Well, any chronic stress is not good. Can I, again, just tease a bit of devil in the detail? Let's say that I'm in a high fly position where there's a lot happening and I define it as stress. And what I'm doing is living on my adrenaline. The evidence is that's actually not dangerous, provided I don't believe it to be dangerous. That's a bit bizarre. But if you believe stress that you're experiencing is really not good for you, then it's likely to be doing quite a bit of damage. If you actually think, no, I'm taking this in my stride, and you genuinely mean it, Therefore, it gives you those moments where you think, bang, a belt of adrenaline. Then the evidence is you probably haven't got any problem with that. Your body's actually living on this. You probably get tired when the adrenaline drops. But the evidence is that it's probably not going to do you that much damage. It's the people who recognize I'm not happy and I'm overwhelmed or being dragged into stress. So going back to your question, it's not easy to recognize chronic stress because what's happened effectively in my sort of model, the chimp has given you the obvious stress to start with where there's these terrible feelings, and then you ignored it or you didn't deal with it, whatever happened, you've moved to the chronic stress stage. What the chimp does is change the parameters. The message changes. It's still the same message, but you experience something different. So I'll give common examples. A commonest example is irritability. Somebody who's under stress is likely to come to me, and when I tease out what kind of person are you in, and then they say, yeah, I, I'm an irritable person. I'm, I'm, I'm pretty short-fused, and um, I'm intolerant at times. And you can ask the obvious, are you getting enough sleep? But the answer is usually they're chronically stressed, and they've actually come to accept that this is me. And I'm saying, actually, it isn't you because you are who you want to be. So if you're saying, I don't want to be like this, I want to be calm, have some perspective in life, then I can work with them on the mind to get that. And I'm always amazed at how amazed they become when they actually start presenting as this calm, collected individual and say, do you know what? I don't, I don't react anymore. I am not short-fused. Naturally, the irritability has gone and I'm in a great place. So the personality that they're describing to me is often chronic stress. It's very unique to the person, so it could present with irritability or anger outbursts. It can present with despondency. It can present with a numbness. It can present with sleep disorders. It can present in multiple ways. So chronic stress is not as easy to recognize as acute stress. I think that's uh, fascinating, Steve. I think that, that will really resonate with, with lots of our viewers as well. And I mean, th those are the questions that kind of focus on the book. I just want to ask some, some questions about yourself, Steve. One thing our, our readers were quite interested in, like, what does kind of an average day look like for you, Steve? Obviously, you're helping a lot of people. But, you know, what, you know, I, I guess you must take things like kind of diet and exercise quite seriously. So what, what are your keys to kind of happiness? The answer is no, I don't take <laughs> and diet seriously i live i've reached old age now so i'm not too worried but on a serious note i haven't got a typical day i haven't i'm still working at university i'm an academic professor and they invite me along to do lectures which i enjoy i work with the royal college of psychiatrists um i 
question set for memberships. I, I enjoy that. I work with corporates. I'm work, doing a lot of work with the police. I'm working with the army. I'm working with individuals. I'm still working with quite a few elite sports personalities and a couple of teams. I do a lot of public speaking and keynotes. I do a lot of workshops and I run a company. So I have 13 mentors who are brilliant, absolutely brilliant at presenting if people want a presentation by one of them. And we do a lot of workshops with people generically and I supervise that as well. So I'm really busy. I absolutely love it. And I probably depict the idea of I'm not stressed at all. I just love it. I go up in the morning at six o'clock with a step. I, I really enjoy what I do. So I thrive on this. So I, I apologize, I don't have a typical day, I go with the flow. So I've got a few sports events that I'll be going to, uh, sporting the teams and, and the individual I'm working with. But outside of that, my diary is, is difficult. I have one, the guy who runs my diary, Andy, probably <laughs> he needs a medal because it just moves, the ground moves literally daily. He, he, he might be in a state of chronic stress, Steve. Oh, he's the most laid back guy. Okay. Has Boris ever called you for help? Or no, but on a serious, you know, have you worked with uh, political people? I've worked with everybody. I think I'm not sure. I'm, again, I, it sounds like wow. What does this guy do? It's because I'm old. I've been around a long time. Yeah, I've worked with individuals who are in politics. I've worked with individuals in government. Obviously, in my former life, I was uh, friends at psychiatrists. So I was under working with the Home Office on the detection and detaining of serial killers, psychopaths. So it's a spectrum of people. So I've done a lot of work with doctors, nurses, teachers. Uh, I'm really keen to support. The professions are at the front of it. And a lot of corporates, and some of them have gone public about this, some of the big companies in, in, in Great Britain. We're in a, in, in a stage now that you know people are more willing to talk about mental health. Because I know we, you know we see people like Tyson Fury being very open about it, a lot of sports people. Is that just messaging or, or are you seeing real change? I think it's changing. You know, somebody asked me this recently, I didn't think it had changed that much because there's still a bit of a stigma. So quite a few people I work with, I get it, if they're, especially if they're television media people, they don't want it to be known just in case there are repercussions. And, and again, there is a bit of a stigma. If I work with someone who's like a CEO and they're really starting to struggle mental health wise, which is really my forte to treat, then they don't want it to be publicly known for good reasons. They may say it may unsettle the staff and people still have this image that if somebody becomes mentally unwell or psychologically not stable, that therefore they're going to be creating big problems. So there's still a bit of a stigma, I feel, attached to it, which is a shame, but I do think it's getting better. I do think we're getting much better than we were. What I'd love to have is that people start taking their psychological health seriously and start doing self-checks to say, right, how am I doing psychologically? And I need to work on this. We see so much messaging around physical health, don't we? You know, eat this, put this in your body. But but there isn't much around. Um, so you, you almost have to go and find it if if you feel that you, you want to. So do, do you think that that might change going forward as well, where we're getting more things kind of advertised to us potentially? Yeah, there's some confusion because, again, even though I'm an academic, to say, well, that's not validated, that's not actually based on science, that's not based on facts or, or research. I think it's what people resonate with. All I'm saying is go to what you resonate with, whatever it is, whether it's proven or not. All we're saying is if, if certain uh, therapies or approaches have been demonstrated to be effective, you're probably better to go to them. But for me, it's whatever works for you. I just want to get your thoughts on, you know, when March 2020... Uh, happened what was your reaction to the to the announcement at the time that first lockdown which obviously was unprecedented and how did you kind of process that and manage that and and, and remain kind of positive 
because of the nature of my work, if I'm honest, I've worked on myself for many years and still do. Every day I do development time and make sure I'm in a good, great place because it's important that I can't help other people. But I think I was preoccupied. With, it, it was a bit of an open floodgate because obviously there were so much problems with running businesses, people in serious trouble financially, relationships were struggling. We know a lot of abuse uh, came in between uh, partners, children. There was a lot of dangers with lockdown that obviously were unprecedented. So I was busy which is good. It's always a privilege to work with people. So for me personally, it didn't really affect because I can still do Zoom calls. It just meant I was online a lot. The effect on other people was very varied. Um, when I looked across the spectrum, there were people who were not coping. I'm taking extremes to drive the point home. They just need human interaction. And they felt that they were becoming very stressed at home, living on their own and talking to a screen. And they wanted structure in their day, which they found difficult. So these were real problems. And I'm obviously looking at a screen as well. It's not ideal. And not getting outside. But other people actually had the opposite. They were saying it's been a brilliant time because I've had more time with my children and my wife or husband. And they're saying it's time I've explored myself. I've started to realize and get some perspective and look at my values and what I'm doing in life. So for them, they, they report back saying COVID's one of the best things that happened. Overall, it was a big negative. And obviously there was horrendous things happened for people uh, when they lost people they were close to. Um, so overall, it, it wasn't obviously it's, it's a terrible experience and we're, we're slowly recovering from it. Final question. I want to talk about that, that legacy of COVID and, and you know, th there's been that kind of split between homeworking and, and getting back in the office. I've read some research that homeworking can negatively affect the brain. But then obviously you've just mentioned there some people say, I love this. I'm at home with my family. You know, what, what are your views on, on, you know, is it good for a person to be working from home nine to five uh, every day? Again, it's, it's going to be unique to the individual. The general rule is, no, it's not good because we are interactive creatures. We're social creatures. We like our family and friends around us. We like to interact with people. And obviously, you're limited in a house. So most people enjoy some time on their own and having space, but like to get out and mix. And obviously, all the social activities went. I think, again, I'm going to go back and say, rather than report on that, which I don't know what comes to the door when people uh, contact me, is it's about the person, isn't it? It's about saying, right, if you've got this restriction and you're going to be locked in and there are certain limitations of what you can and can't do, let's have a plan of what you're going to do to make the most of this time. Because again, we don't know how long it was going to last. And it may come back. We just don't know, do we? So the idea again was going back to this, get yourself in a good place to where we started. And then the probability that you'll be happier and more peace of mind and successful is likely to happen. If you're not in a good place, then you could still be successful and happy, but the probability starts to lower. So I'd be imploring people to really consider whether you believe your psychological health is important to you and whether, especially if it's business people, how important is it if you're the boss or, or you're in a team, how important is it that you get yourself in a good place to get the best out of yourself and have an influence on others which is much more positive. But again, it's not for me to say, I'm asking people to question and say, could you do improvements on your psychological health? And if somebody weren't very well, uh, and maybe actually clinically unwell and depressed, get in touch with the doctor and get an assessment done. Do you have any final words uh, for the business leader audience? No, thank you. Thank you very much for this. And anyone who's watched, thank you for listening. And I always say this at the end of talks, if anything resonates, don't let it go. If you're not happy, you don't agree or whatever, throw it out with the rubbish. But do find something that will give you a better psychological health. That's all I ask people to do.